and welcome to today's Success Story podcast. I'm Georgie Corridge-Cole and today I'm joined by William Chase, founder of Tyrrell's Crisps, Chase Distillery and more recently Willie's Apple Cider Vinegar. With an ambition to develop a premium crisp from the potatoes grown on his childhood farm, in the early 2000s William launched Tyrrell's Crisps. Targeted at the likes of Selfridges over Sainsbury's, William's clear vision for his crisps to be a high-end product forced Tesco to stop stocking the crisps in 2006. With sales of over £14 million in 2008, William went on to sell a majority stake in the company for almost £40 The same year, Chase Distillery was born, focusing on high-end premium-grade vodka, then expanding into flavoured vodkas, liqueurs, gin and wine. The business was sold by William in the height of the pandemic to multinational drinks producer and distributor Diageo. Now working on his third brand, Willie's Wellness. I am very pleased to welcome William to this success story. Hi, William. Hi, Georgie. Thanks for asking me. Great to be here. Let's start at the beginning. You grew up on a farm in Herefordshire called Tyrrells from a rural upbringing. Was the expectation you'd become a farmer? How did you actually go on to become an entrepreneur? What was it that sowed that seed? Yeah, growing up on a farm, I think it was um, quite a privileged upbringing in some ways. I was very inspired by... My mother and father, who were quite sort of entrepreneurial in the 70s, they used to grow because it was a small farm. Other things we used to have sort of from turkeys through to lots of greenhouses with chrysanthemums and green peppers and all sorts of crops. That sort of inspired me and I really enjoyed the whole sort of side of being outdoors with growing crops. So that probably gave me my green fingers and my urge to, to be a farmer. And so uh, both your parents worked on the farm. Is that something you did in your school holidays before and after school? Was it always going to be the path that you followed when you left school? How did it actually come to be your job also? Oh, yeah, I left the place. I didn't want to go to school. So I was always very, <laughs> uh, very happy to be at home, to be on the farm. So it, that was like a massive um, attraction for me. And were there bits of the of farming life that you were particularly drawn to when you were younger? Yeah, I tried all things, really. I tried from very young age growing things. I even tried keeping ducks for duck eggs and things. And and my mum used to help me take them to the local Hereford market and things. And I think it was quite an inspirational sort of growing up thing. And I think that gave me the feel for the whole sort of seasons and the smell of it and the whole idyllic life, I guess, really, of the the countryside. And Mm. and what we see of today, things like um, how people want to revert to the good life, I guess. And tell me about your education. You left education at what age? And did you go straight into the farm? Yeah. My education, I I went to a local boarding school, but I used to board weekly, which probably made it worse because I'd come home for the weekends, I'd want to hide and not go back again for the week. (laughs) I didn't really enjoy it, but then when I look back, I think it's quite good to have the disciplines and things. Have a local boarding school, we used to call it colditz, but I didn't really enjoy it. Whereas I think school today is different and they always say it's the best days of your life and everything else, but not for me. I couldn't wait to leave. My mother died when I was quite young, so I left school fairly early, and um, my mother died when I was 14, so over the next sort of couple of years I drifted off and sort of left school and spent a lot of time on the farm looking for things to do at a very very young age and so, so I suppose that sort of got me started at, at a very young age really and I can blame it we all have blames and things in our life or we, we look for things to attach it to but I think that's probably part of the catalyst that, that got me going at a young age. There's a story about you buying the farm from your father for £200,000 when you were 20 can you tell us a bit about that and why you did it? Yeah that's what my father wanted to do 
do. And, you know, it's quite tough for him after he lost my mother and wanting another. So for some silly reason, I wanted to buy the farm when I was 20. I found a bank manager that was um, very sympathetic. And with a, a young guy of 20 without any experience or knowledge, I managed to secure a loan of a couple of hundred grand to buy the farm. Gosh, that's quite impressive. You must have very impressive skills of persuasion, William, 20-year-old, 200 grand. Back then, it was, it was quite a feat. It was, yes. When I look back, I think things are probably a little bit different in those days. But I thought if I worked really hard, I could make some money and make a go of it. I tried mm. all sorts of farming you name it. I tried from growing cauliflowers to all sorts of exotic crops to many things. And then I focused on potatoes for the sort of the next 10 years. Obviously, those potatoes went on to become Tyrrell's crisp. Before Tyrrell's or Chase existed in the 90s, you said you were declared bankrupt. Obviously, you are hugely successful today. But can you tell us how that happened and how you recovered from that? In my 20s, this was my first chapter in life, I suppose, my first go at business, borrowing so much money off the bank. I didn't have any working capital, so I was always right on my limit all the time. As soon as I paid some money in, I had to pay some bills. I never had any money, so I was always cash-strapped. And I decided to focus on potatoes, and eventually, sort of towards the end of the first chapter, I had some really um, tough times, and basically, it took me out. I had a really bad year. I had a bad accident. I was in hospital, sort of paralysed. What happened? I always had a bad back, but then I fell off the radar one morning, and um, that sort of exploded the joints in my back, and I sort of paralysed then. So I had about four weeks then in bed then, trying to get in the hospital, trying to get it sorted, in the middle of everything falling down. It was 1992, the Queen's Annus Horribilis, and it was a complete disaster. Mm. So it was a really tough time mentally and physically, but it was the foundation, I think, of sort of always the next chapter. But you always think back in your life to those points that what made you keep going, I guess. And uh, Uh, What did make you go? I mean, there were 10 years before you founded Tyrrells in 2002. Talk to us about those 10 years and what happened and how you got through it. So the next chapter then, coming out of hospital, being bankrupt, but the receiver let me keep my car and trying to keep the property that I had a massive mortgage on. So trying to stay in there and trying to find somebody to lend me the money to buy it back off the receiver as a bankrupt wasn't really, was tremendously difficult as well. And that was immensely tough time. So I had to resort to trading potatoes. And luckily, Tesco's came into my life then that they'd actually wanted these pretty potatoes from Herefordshire so we could source those for them. Pretty? Did you call them pretty potatoes? Yeah, it was a quite interesting time <laughs> in the 90s. All UK supermarkets were looking for pretty veg and right. fresh veg. That's why veg is always the first thing you see in a supermarket. It's the biggest margin for supermarkets and it gets people in the mood because really it shouldn't be under underneath all your shopping, should it? So this is sort of the beginning of the era where supermarkets are clearing up all the food stories because up until then, most farmers would have sort of a straw over their potatoes and cover them with all sorts of things. And, and the supermarkets really did clean up the whole act. So we built a business trading potatoes for Tesco's and they helped me. They paid me in seven days so I could pay the farmers and get good credit terms and have the cash flow to get started again. So that was how the Tesco's almost helped us get back on our feet again. And that took us all the way up to the Eureka idea. My first Eureka idea with my first sort of album, I guess, would have been at Tyrrell's, was building the brand Tyrrell's, was a busy trading away. I I was making money at it. I was solvent again. But it was quite a tough life because in the days when mobile phones were as big as house bricks. 
and you'd have a few phones and I'd have phones for my farmers and phones for the customers. And it was quite hard work because you had to start work every day from scratch. Just tell me, before we get on to the crisps, if it is something easy to grow? Yeah, but you get one crop a year. You need fresh ground to grow them on every time. And the reason to get pretty looking potatoes, you need to grow them in clean ground. That's why sort of Herefordshire was a good place to do it. I see. And, and so that, that was good, putting all those bits together. But then as everybody gets into something, it got quite tough. So my first Eureka idea came then one day when I had a load of potatoes rejected and I had a very angry farmer onto me doing all sorts, sorts, saying all sorts of naughty things and I had to find a home for his potatoes and it just so happened that I found a customer at Kettle Chips and they bought these potatoes because they were frying dark and in those days hand fried chips are great big thick dark things and so I managed to do a deal with those potatoes and not just those ones he had I managed to buy a whole lot more which actually for the first time made me quite a lot of money and got me started and then after having the idea I thought this is it I'm going to do it and um, I want to start making crisps but the trouble was in those days 2002 there was no Google I had to learn how to do it and to go right back to the beginning so um, I took this packet of uh, Cape Cod crisps and I thought I'll go and visit them I tried to visit ones in the UK but nobody let me in their factories so it's really hard to find out where to buy the equipment and how to do it all mm-hmm. so straight away I flew out to America I went out to East Coast America went to see these Cape Cods and all I could buy there was a mug they wouldn't tell me what to do so <laughs> I, was, I was in New York I was about to fly home again and then I found this packet of crisps for called Hers and this guy said you better come and see me I rang him up said you better come and see me I went to see him and he said, I'll show you how to make the crisps and do the whole thing. How do you make a crisp? He introduced me to these Amish guys and they taught me how to make them. And by then, in those days, they were frying them in beef lard and something in Ooh. New Holland. So I was introduced right. to these Amish guys. Well, they weren't Amish guys. These are Mennonites, the guys that could use the power. And these guys helped me put all the equipment together, source it and get started, basically. You brought a load of equipment to you. What, what do you need to make a crisp? What is it? Some big machines? Well, yeah, basically, you just wash your spuds up and scrub them up and slice them up and, and put them in boiling oil but it's right. how you do that gives them all the characters without boring you about all that side of it and your plan for your Tyrrell's Chris was to create a premium product I mean where did that idea come from you were selling potatoes to Tesco's why premium what was the gap in the market who was in the market talk to us about the sort of brand positioning and the opportunity you saw there my experience of trading in potatoes and, and basically buying and selling a commodity. Mm-hmm. And so as a farmer, you only get given what you're given. So I thought well, if we could go all the way and we could actually make it into a product and sell it direct to the customers. So I guess it started by accident as much as anything with Tyrrells because I had a had a couple of meetings with some big customers who weren't very interested. Well, see, at the, that time, there was a massive explosion in farm shops and sort of independent delis. And these guys were desperate for something with pedigree. And they were all really interested in this sort of farmer that was actually putting the field's name and the potato variety name on the back of the packets and the whole sort of transparency. So I think that was like a revolution with the whole sort of mm. speciality food market in the Manelium when it started. So that, that was really exciting doing that. And then we had such massive support from all these independent retailers and the thing is for them they were just interested in the money they were making out of it so it was a and and most important of all when you had meetings they were talking about the the product so that was really exciting times building that and because they sold themselves and the phone started ringing and it kept ringing we didn't have to go into sales so everybody in Tyrrells to start with was totally not out of the industry they were just local guys 
off the farm and local businesses that all came to join and they had a lot of fun and it had the magic straight away so the phone started ringing and from then on I think success breeds success so Tyrrell's just sold itself then and the whole magic of it was fantastic but what I learned it was all about customer service and the product if the product was really good and the main thing was it took me about pyramid that if you launch a product at the top of the pyramid it's the only unless you've got a widget and you've got a product that nobody else has got you can then obviously go straight to mass market. Say we were going to make some smoothies or something, we were going to have Nanny's knitting hats and nobody else had got smoothies, we could go straight to mass market. But what we had wasn't without its competitors, and the competitors are all over the mass market. So we took Tyrrells straight to all these independents, and it was amazing, the response. And then one day, another one of the first eureka moments came up after, as soon as we got started, was one of the Polish guys working with us at the time. I used to cook his parsnips in the fryer for his supper, and he always used to, so that gave us the idea to start frying vegetables. You are talking to a Veg Crisps mega super fan here, although I'd really like a packet of pure beetroot crisps please uh, oh yeah we sort of pioneered those and it was such a mess in the factory so we started cooking beetroots and these guys are so passionate about it we were sourcing all these beetroots carrots carrots are the hardest to cook but beetroots are fantastic and they were so sweet oh they're the best those in the parsnips <laughs> you make such a mess of the factory but it was incredible that was in what year so, so Tales was 2002 and, and that was and about 2003 what was the first flavour of Tyrrell's crisps the first flavour was cider vinegar funnily enough everybody said the biggest selling crisp flavour will be cheese but for us it was actually a cider vinegar and sea salt it was phenomenal how that my husband's favourite a bloody mary on a Sunday bit of a hangover and some cider vinegar Tyrrell's and he's a happy chap before lunch <laughs> that was fantastic that was so exciting as well doing those and the vegetables then just launched it because the vegetables were selling for twice the price so vegetables just gave us a larger margin plus we had the market to ourselves and we put them in these beautiful little cubes and um, paper sort of packets they look fantastic with huge standouts so again back to the top of the pyramid we only sold them in sort of Selfridges Harvey Nicks they raved about them and William I mean where does this instinct come from i mean you say you had a bit of luck i mean with the greatest respect i mean look what you've achieved but you left school at 15 and grew up on a farm how did this all fall into place with Tyrrell? did you have a mentor who was doing your branding like it can't just be that easy you know how did you get it so right and i know you say it was the right time and that the trend for independent and you know transparency etc but what other factors were in the mix to make this so successful you're so right there and i think it's lady luck lady <laughs> luck is amazing she's a wonderful thing and i think lady lady luck, luck does not exist william she does. <laughs> she does she was there you make your own there. luck and we had the luck we had the business gods on our side and the business just went sheer aggression and drive from everybody that worked from you and all the team the team on the farm the people i had there were just phenomenal they would stay at night time as long as it took to do it they'd start it's a good honest hard graft is that what you're saying absolutely and passion i think mm. huge passion from the whole team none of them were experts in it not in sales marketing frying were you looking for those sorts of qualities in people when you recruited them definitely yes because if i look at my younger my misspent youth on all those tractors doing all 18 20 hours a day after day after day as soon as your head had hit the pillow the next thing you know it's time to wake up and get back on the tractor again and do more and if that's bred into you that tenacity Mm. to stick at it and work i think it's a phenomenal place 
So it's so a strong work ethic is... Oh, definitely. And the belief. I think if everybody in the business believes, it's not the people who want the most money, it's the people who enjoy the job. I think the most important thing is not having that songs of praise moment on a Sunday night or that heartbeat <laughs> if you're younger, I guess. So you look forward to going to work on a Monday morning. You spend too much of your life at work not to enjoy it. So and, and I couldn't agree more. With building these brands, it's taught me that I think most people are in the wrong jobs as well. If you're not enjoying it, and the world's obviously a different place now with COVID and what's happened, but I still think there's a lot of people they say don't change their jobs until they have to or change their careers and we don't mm. plan it from the beginning do we when we're 18 to 20 we don't say well when I'm 30 I'll be doing this and when I'm 40. Mm. The other point to this day still surprises me that in when I first had the Eureka idea to do Tyrrells in 2001 October I had a shed full of potatoes and that very same shed by April 2002 six months later was a fully upworking crisp factory but then mm. six months to design a packet to, to get the whole brand off the ground to get everything working i think even to this day i'm still quite surprised how quickly we got all the potatoes out the shed cleaned it out bought the equipment put it in made five flavors of crisps and packets on the market amazing who came up with your branding oh i did that myself to start with i always inspired by others i don't think any of us invent anything we're always a little influenced by other things and whether the writing went vertically or horizontal it was going to be chase's chips to start with and then i had terrells on the end of the sign on the end of the drive so i just i put that on the packet and the same sort of times font and everything was sort of basic just pictures of the ingredients tried to make them transparent to start with told by a lot of supermarkets that'll never work because it's too honest but it did work and it worked really well but the whole designing I think from that point forwards we've always done it all ourselves we've sort of tried to avoid using agencies and to make everything as natural and honest mm. and that's probably back to the farmer trait to me that everything I do I like to do it ourselves right from the design to growing it to making it I think if a brand can be 100% honest and true to its home without agencies doing work for it and bringing it you know sort of bringing it to life I think yeah. there's something about honesty I love honest branding. Mm. And that we've seen huge disruption in practically every category in the supermarket. Well, in consumer business, haven't we? And brands have stripped themselves back and stopped some of that jargon and, yeah, been more honest and straight talking to the consumer. And it has created huge opportunity, as you know, better than anyone. So you were making good money. You were selling to high-end, independent, you know, premium retailers. You weren't in supermarkets. That was a conscious decision from you and private equity then came along in 2008 and what was your role in the business at that time and talk to us about that journey with private equity and the process I suppose having lady luck and dropping on something that went really well and it had the magic and the luck it grew really well but the hardest part was sort of keeping up I'm not a corporate guy and I think this is a really interesting subject that when a business gets bigger how it can grow without turning into a corporate I think people are the key part of growing any business and can people in a small company work for a large company and can people in large companies work for small ones and the answer is no because in small companies you have to be so multitasking you take a lot of small entrepreneurs in their businesses or single business owners doing everything in a business from purchasing to selling to production they have to be so multitasked and understand everything so when I built Tyrrells I understood everything from the free fatty acid testing in the oil to buying the equipment to the foil the packaging the outers the distribution the sales the marketing I had to do it all myself whereas 
when that company turns into a large company, you have a person for each sector. And then yeah. when it gets larger again, you get a person in each sector of each sector. So yeah. that was a really interesting point. So when you've got a business growing really, really quickly, it's very difficult to keep up with everything and then the trouble is as you start getting the so-called experts in well they have to put a lot more people into a position where you had one single-minded person multitasking but did did you find that easy i mean you're someone who believes in you know homegrown and independent business and grassroots up etc in many ways i would think you're someone who would want to hang on to that brand how did you walk away from the business and was that an easy decision from you because you felt like you know you weren't the corporate person and the business was ready for that no it wasn't that was my baby so without being too dramatic about it but it was I I addressed it I decided the branding and everything about it I even laid the concrete all on the site and there were my old potato sheds and the whole thing was was sort of my life's work And, and it's really really tough but then you only live once and so there's always the challenge then to see if you can do it again. So I think that the call <laughs> of trying to do it again, whether it's being greedy or whatever, you could say to build one one brand is probably enough for one person in their life. But to do it again, I just love the excitement of putting a product on a shelf with true pedigree and honesty yeah. and getting people to buy it without having to pay them. Where the business was, because it was growing so fast, it had to take on more people mm. and grow. And the hardest part was the culture of all those people. So the one thing I probably wouldn't do again is is that with, with VC, is I would never go to VC. I'd always look for a partner and not a venture capitalist because I think venture capitalists are just out for themselves <laughs> and they're not really out for the true tenacity of the long term of the business. They're looking for their sort of Ferraris and their flip. They don't really own the business. Whereas if you're the owner operator, you're worried about the lights being left on at night or paper clips wasting in the bin or, you know, you're worried about all these little bits <laughs> of so the place isn't tidy or there's some rubbish on the floor. Tape clips in the bin god forbid i know when you're, you're looking at saving every penny when you've started the business <laughs> with nothing and then suddenly you have all these people come in that are just working for themselves and they're not working mm. for the business mm. and they're just worried about their package and mm. and suddenly the whole culture in the business changes mm. and the brand then turns into this machine but ultimately i guess you realized that the, the business needed that step change and it was getting a lot bigger and growing quickly and you'd perhaps reach the point that you could take it to being someone who is more of an entrepreneur than a corporate person did you sell to private equity on the basis that that was the position you were in and you had another idea sort of bubbling that you wanted to bring to life yes absolutely and that's one thing i learned is you have to let go as well so you can't be on both sides of the field so you have to let Mm. go and move on and leave it to them because as i said a big company has a different culture and mentality to a small one so and in order for it to grow the other thing is when it's a small company like most startups it's the startup it's the entrepreneur's own private money Mm. whereas once it turns into a large corporate company everybody in the business it's probably somebody else's money so it's it's getting past that that point i guess so talk to us about chase distillery where did that idea come from obviously potatoes but when did that idea come for you how did you get it off the ground and how did you do it all over again so building turtles one of the things i decided to do rather make own label for supermarkets and to grow i thought we'd just focus on export so i made it my challenge to try and visit 60 countries and get turtles in as many countries being very ambitious and very hungry um, to travel the world and as I traveled the world it was quite good to see new trends that actually got me into the whole four corners of the world probably the key areas that really influenced me were places like Hong Kong west coast America sort of LA 
through to Melbourne in Australia. Those places really did surprise me on sort of modern trends, what's mm. happening and where the world's going. And so I was looking for the next chapter, probably before I sort of sold Tyrrells, and I, and I saw the spirits world as a bit like the Chris world was before we went into it, was there are all these spirits brands, but none of them really had the pedigree of the farm. They couldn't tell you where they actually came from. They just sold it on the bling and the glitz. And you had brands at the time like Grey Goose, and met Sydney Frank that they'd sold Grey Goose for two billion. And I thought, wow, wow that's exciting. And Grey Goose and these other brands didn't really at the time talk about their pedigree. They just talked about the cocktails and the culture. So I thought mm. if we could do the same with Tyrrells, with Chase Distillery, and we could actually give it pedigree in a home and a reason to exist. And so when you had your gin, you could actually know which field it came from and how it was made. And that was the idea. And I thought people, if they're <laughs> going to pay that kind of money that super premium spirits wear, that was the whole reason for the business to start. And how easy is vodka versus crisps? Oh, yeah, different altogether. They all have their problems. Everything has its problems. It always looks easy afterwards. But crisps, I had the wrong packaging machine to start with. So every 10th packet for the first six months had a little hole in it. With the distillery, it was a whole load of raft of problems to sort of try and get over to get started. But once we got past those, I think the biggest shock was the volume. Once you're used to selling something, say, in Waitrose to 99% of its audience, and then you've got a product that you're selling, in less than 1% of its audience, it's a different space altogether. But the most exciting space about that market was the audience you're dealing with. You're dealing with people who really do care and they are very interested. If you look at the wine industry, people really do care about smart wines, where they come from Mm. and their pedigree and their makeup and their taste. Mm. And And it's the same with spirits as well. I think if people are going to spend money on something they want to know it's true pedigree what year did you actually launch chase in so we started chase in 2007 and um, made our first bottle on april fool's day 2008 and how easy has it been i mean it sounds all quite straightforward was that the case and was it harder than tyrrell's was i presumably you had you know better contacts more contacts this time around was it the same model in terms of distribution Talk to us about the journey from sort of 2008 onwards. It was, yes. The whole spirits world then when we started, nobody went direct to customer and very few little independent retailers had their own sort of license. So everything was done through wholesalers and distributors. So sort of to go direct was sort of an orthodox and a whole new thing. So, so that was quite sort of pioneering in itself. And the reason I wanted to do that was the same as the Tyrrells. We could actually get to speak to our retailers and our customers directly And they could come out to the farm and they could see it and they could actually get to own it so they could transmit that and communicate that to their customers. So I think that was a really key part of it. But then, in answer to your question, it was a massive challenge because nobody had done this before with spirits. And branding-wise, again, did that come from you or was it a different process this time? No, branding-wise, again, we got very... That's why if you look at its early history, it looks all probably like early history of Tyrrells, really. It all looks a bit of a pickle. There's all sorts of different (laughs) brandings and it's going very vertical, horizontal, different fonts, and it's all over the place. To an expert, they'd say it's not very good, but I think it's very transparent and honest. And, you know, we used to work really well with a lot of people in the industry to send them out little samples and see what they thought and get them involved in the process. So 
it was a massive chapter after doing snacks to go into the sort of uber premium try and find a new category in spirits that hadn't really been done before amazing and, and talk to us about the product lineup because it was vodka to start with and you've gone on to do amazing flavored vodkas but also gin so can you just talk to us about how you evolved the, the product range and also how you came up with all your unique flavors so yeah i think it really started with the fact that gin is made out of vodka and then if you talk to people about different categories examples a lot of people if you ask them if they want to try some vodka they say no i don't drink vodka sorry when i was younger i had a bad experience and i never touched it again or i just don't like it or i'm posh and it doesn't suit me <laughs> then gin if you ask gin drinkers they are quite different but then when you try and confront them that gin is made out of vodka and it's basically the same thing that was the mission we wanted to do so to make really good quality gin you first of all had to make the world's best tasting vodka which i believe we made it was a phenomenal product remember the first batch we did we mashed up about 20 tons of spuds and boiled them up and distilled them and then we had a tiny few drops in this pot afterwards and i thought gosh this is going to be a long slow journey but it tasted so good and it was such a great way to make the base spirit and then to make that into gin. So the whole evolution then with different flavors and things, I think we bought different machines at the cosmetics industry, we bought this vacuum cooker that we could cook marmalade and we made the marmalade. Out of the cosmetics industry? Yeah, we bought this thing that boils the spirit under a vacuum. So it's like boiling your kettle on a mountain. So you could, things like orange botanicals and things, you could boil it into there without destroying the the preciousness of it at a lot lower temperature. So we did a lot of pioneering and, and it was a lot of fun with probably a lot of heartache with it as well but I think we made some fantastic fantastic things especially like our marmalade vodka and marmalade gin it was great fun doing all the research and it was distilling all these different products and aging different things especially off the farm and local ingredients and showed the difference as well it was quite nice pioneering and everybody in the distillery used to love playing about with these different botanicals to distill and I think it's innovation if you look at every brand and every business I think innovation is something that has to constantly keep coming. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Chase Vodka was voted best in the world in April 2010 in San Francisco at the World Spirits Competition. That's amazing. How did you conquer the US? Everyone says that's the make or break, isn't it, of a business? Any advice for, for people listening who might have a product they want to get over over the pond? It is. That's the big one. Any brand, as you know, we're only 1% of the world's population when you look at the size of America. So naturally, yeah. if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, as Frank said. Yeah. But it is the tricky one and I could talk about it for ages but it's with Tyrrells and with Chase America is so big and they're so pro their own things. How did you get them to be pro your things then? Just getting them to love the Britishness, I think. Right, we so that's really, what you played really on. well in places where a lot of Americans love the Britishness. They love Downton mm-hmm. Abbey, so hence sort of the Land Rovers <laughs> and the Union Jacks and the and the sofas and the sort of the land of hope and glory and, and that side of it. They did love it. There is an affection underneath Americans for the way we do things. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think if you can play on that and get them to love it and mm-hmm. own it, then they will do. But you can't teach them their own tricks. They've got to accept it. Talk to us about lockdown, talk to us about last year and how the business was impacted by this pandemic we are still in the midst of and what then happened in October for Chase. When it all started, it all kicked off. We do have lots of sort of independence and direct customers, which we sort of all rely on. So we're not just relying on the sort of the on-trade, which sort of closed down, which was one route. The other part of the business was 
as soon as it's struck, having a team of very, very able, fantastic people on the farm who can switch their resources straight away, we started making sanitizer because one of our customers said one day, look, I don't really want any spirits. What we need in here is some sanitizer and mm. you can't get any because we don't make spirit in this country. So because Chase Distillery was the only distillery making its own spirit from scratch, all of the spirit that would have been going in the, into the on-trade, we were then making it into a sanitizer. So that was amazing how the team, fantastic guys who worked within seven days, we had the product and the recipe and everything all in the market and in the customer's wow. hands, which was a huge thing. And we did a lot locally as well for the national health. And the whole thing, I think it was a great way of the business actually jumping to the crisis and really reason we sort of launched it as hr1 sanitizer because it was to help all the people on that site and that area for their jobs and it supported them and it did do that and in that crisis it was good to do something for others as well but Absolutely. as well for everybody in the business to keep everything going and diageo came knocking essentially in october how did that come about again as the business grows it needs partners it needs route to market i was always looking in this business for a partner that would come and join the fun and help to take on yeah, especially for global, as I, as I said, the difference between different businesses, but this industry, it's such your route to market is everything. And so something like their route to market was fantastic. And I think with their attitude and their investment in British business, and most important thing they saw, which I was really inspired by, was the fact that they really understood sustainable business and they want to get, you know, there's lots of these big companies that are joining on bandwagons and they're doing B Corp or they're doing all these different things. They're planting a few trees or but for a company to actually invest in sustainable business, I think, is fantastic. So I was quite inspired to have them come aboard and um, want to take the story on and take Chase to the world, really. Take it to all different corners. And have you retained a share of the business? At the moment, yes. But I don't know how, again, it's like the Tyrrells thing. It's hard to let go, isn't it? You know, if it's been your thing, especially this time around, because it actually didn't have the farm's name on it. It had my own surname mm. on it. Mm. So it's got your family name on it. But I, I think it's a good thing to let go totally as well and have another chapter because yeah. I think I've tried other things in between as well and unless you give something your total focus it's so hard to give it the love and the and the work yes. it does and to bring a brand it's like a human being it's not to turn it into a Frankenstein it's so important to bring it up with the right manners and dress it in the right clothes and, <laughs> and, and give it good manners I think the pedigree of a brand I'm so proud of, of you know Tyrrell's and Chase's pedigree and long may they both carry on and, and that's another thing on that subject the brands are bigger than all of us once you do build these brands and they do go their way into the world they can stand and run yeah. and live and walk on their own give them wings and let them get them go out there and flourish uh, which brings me neatly on to chapter three which is willie's wellness it's apple cider vinegar it's something we've read a lot about in the press over recent years it's something that we've been writing about at Sherlock's on and off for a number of years now and I, I remember first writing about it I want to say about five years ago at least when it was sort of quite niche but there were various sort of wacky wellness people drinking about it it's becoming more and more mainstream and that's certainly what you're setting out to do with it where did this idea come from? I've always had this idea ever since early days with Tyrrell's was to make cosmetics or to get into natural wellness products that have a genuine reason to exist. They're not supplements or whatever made in a lab, but they're actually true ingredients, natural remedies. This is my widget. 
And I've been looking for this for years and something that actually is natural and it does some good. So the idea for Willie's ACV came from, I was always looking for this, my widget. The next thing, I always love cosmetics. I was looking for this natural remedy, something that is true and live. And so really it was me meeting the mother and just discovering the mother. I was in a Whole Foods one day waiting for a meeting and I was hearing these girls that kept saying, where is it, where is it? And so I thought, oh, I'll see what they're looking for. And they were looking for a cider vinegar and they were just looking for cider vinegar because they'd heard about it. And one of these girls picked the bottle up and she's telling her friends that how it helps help to lose weight and how all these different celebs it does for them and what it does for your as a shampoo for hair and, and what it does for your whole body and for life. And and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. And it's just what we've got at home. So when I got back, I researched it again for a few seconds. And that's what got me straight into that. And I think that when I researched cider vinegar and all sort of natural fermented products, the first thing you need is your culture. And that's your mother. And what <laughs> I've got with my mother here, which was amazing, is she's 300 years old. She's been in these orchards in this beautiful farm we live at, Mother Farm, where Willie's is based. Is We've got these 300-year-old orchards. And the mother's been alive in there. She's never been interfered by any modern farming practices the orchards are all up and down they've never been probably last time they were ploughed is by oxen so the whole culture and the soil and the wildlife is phenomenal it's mm. more than organic it's sort of biodynamic it's never seen any intervention at all they're never sprayed and so I was, after my research showed me that this mother that's living in here she's been there for so many years so we captured the mother made her into cider and instead <laughs> of making her into cider to sell it as cider we started making it into vinegar researched it as I did with Tyrrells and Chase and made our own specific special equipment to acetify and tanks to make it in and to look after our mother because I thought the next brand I build I promised myself I wouldn't get involved in building a factory and the whole thing I'd take shortcuts like other people and get somebody to do it for me but to look after our mother and make her we couldn't get anybody else to do it for us so we had to invest in a new factory or a new whole fermenting <laughs> brewery to do this in so it was great fun learning again and here we are now we've got this great mother maker and she's beautiful she doesn't look that pretty but she's like a great big jellyfish that lives in the bottom of these tanks but that's the secret so for everything even our kombucha we make everything it's all made from this mother she's so natural and, and again as we did with Tyrrells and Chase is the taste it's phenomenal the taste of it I have to say that you kindly sent me some and I assumed you sort of drank a cap of it uh, neat and it was like a sort of shot of goodness anyway if anyone's listening I don't advise that you do that it wasn't until I looked on the back and read that you added it to dressings and smoothies and all sorts of things but that was how you got the one inside of it anyway it's an amazing taste it's very strong but god you can taste the goodness in it can't you yeah it's, it's real so I think the whole movement now the gut health movement is phenomenal it's been led and driven by 20 to 30 sort of millennial female savvy individuals and I think it's so inspiring now especially since the last 12 months what's happened people have taken health so seriously and gut health it's so heartwarming to see people actually interested in their food yeah well I don't think it's lady luck at all I think it's pretty savvy if you ask me for people listening what is in the product lineup so far so I in the product line obviously it's the number one mother she's our star she's our celebrity Willie's ACV 
300-year-old mother is the number one product. The second that I have discovered now is turmeric. And on another side on our farm, we're now working on how to grow turmeric and ginger because we have to import it and it costs so much money and there's a massive surge in turmeric. If you take turmeric, you have to have it with black pepper, otherwise your body doesn't absorb it. Is so that right? We're making mm. a fantastic sort of shrubs out of it and make, made a fantastic vinegar. It's available now in all respectable food shops and waitrose where we're putting fresh ground turmeric, black pepper and honey. And to me, that's my secret sauce. I think that's amazing. I put that on all food and it brings all food alive. And the other products I'm making then is I'm making kombucha out of it. So the same mother then, we turn into a scoby and we're making kombucha out of it. And we're making cider vinegar and beetroot and different shots as well. So it's the convenience of taking it. There are all sorts of things like gummies and pellets and supplements, which I don't believe in because they're heated and they're processed and they're not real. Mm. But I think if you take it, you want to drink real life ferments. Fermented food is is so excited. It's, it's such the future. It's a really exciting place to be. Amazing. How do you take the apple cider vinegar yourself, William? I personally struggle with it neat, as you said. That's not, that's not recommended. <laughs> not recommended. So my favourite would be to boil some beetroots every few weeks. I've got a big kiln a jar. I boil the beetroots, slice them up, and then top that up with just neat Willie's ACV. Oh, and then delicious. Leave it in there for a little bit, and then I'll t- have some of that every single day and try and eat those beetroots with as many meals as possible and that's how I take it I think it's like all trends and all diets you can start but it's how you keep doing it so you have to stay on it and the most exciting thing I think about this whole sort of health wellness mood at the moment is we've seen the fad diets I think of all sort of not come and gone but they're questionable Mm -hmm. but I think it's eating common sense food balanced diet yeah. And, and eating and, and to have a natural remedy like ACV in amongst it. But not only the most exciting thing that we're working on now is sort of real life shrubs as well. So a way we can get back into when it comes alive again, the hospitality industry is in bars and places is to make real live ACV shrubs. And I think that's an exciting place. So if you're drinking something, there's no point in drinking something non-alcoholic that's non-alcoholic wine or spirits or anything. I think you might as well have something that's good for you. So if you have something that's good for you, like live ACV shrubs or live kombucha that while you're drinking is actually doing you a lot of good at the same time Mm. so I think that's a really exciting place it's changed my mind my mind and my life I think I've grown up now and I'm ready for um (laughs) I'm ready for this and I I do I think as you get older you realize you know there's a time to look after your body and to look Mm. after Mm. your life and I think especially exercise with fit life food is is a fantastic place to absolutely be. absolutely it's where we all need to be yeah. william wow what what an amazing story and you know not one not two but three businesses before we finish can you leave us with um, some parting advice to budding entrepreneurs yes i've always have three points and, and these three points keep coming round and round all the time the first one is never be jealous of the competition and, and always respect your competition and only be jealous of the competition if they're doing something you haven't thought of not if they're copying you the second one is never go to bed with anybody you work with (laughs) metaphorically obviously and the third was always identify our weaknesses I think the problem we all have is we don't identify our weaknesses we all know our strengths but our weaknesses I think it's like wearing that mask isn't it that we all whether we're up or down if you smile the world smiles with you so I think if you can always be positive I think positive is a inspiration and positiveness is everything so I think if you can identify our weaknesses and remain constantly positive with a smile and get people to believe people will believe in what you want to do then and I think if you can believe it yourself but if you 
don't believe it, nobody else is going to believe it. So I think you have to believe it and prove it. What wise words. William, thank you so much. I, I mean, I, I believe it all. What honest real talking and it makes perfect sense to me um i've loved hearing all of your stories i wish you huge luck with willies and i know that i am going to be coming back for more thank you so much for talking to us that was great thank you it's been a pleasure lovely to share with you that's it for today if you enjoyed that then do please rate review subscribe leave us a comment tell your friends to listen to and we will be back soon thanks very much bye-bye